0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: And there's always been the sense that woodlands and forests are incredibly important resources in terms of of how we live in the world, how we survive, how we make sense of our place in the world. And that goes all the way back.
2: That was Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough talking about the mysterious history of forests. For today's episode, we've paid a visit to Sherwood Forest in Nottinghamshire, famed, of course, for its associations with the Robin Hood legend, but also a great place to explore the history of forests more broadly. On location there for us were Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough, who recently presented a series on forests for BBC Radio 3, alongside our Deputy Editor, Charlotte Hodgman.
3: So we've come to Sherwood Forest to have a chat about ancient woodlands and the kind of the, the importance and significance over history. We're on a path to Thinghau. Um, what is Thinghaw? and where is it and what was it? Oh, well the clue's in the name, because I mean when you think Sherwood Forest, we think Robin
1: Hood, we don't <laughs> think Vikings, right? But we're all about the Vikings on this path because thinghow is actually a a Norse place. The word thing is an assembly place. It's, um, you know, so it was used by the Norse settlers in this part of England um, as as a sort of meeting point. So you need somewhere convenient where everyone can get to. And the how probably comes from an old Norse word which means sort of mound so i've never been here actually so this is an adventure for me as well but what i'm expecting is is at least a little bit of raised ground you know or as raised as you're going to get in this this part of the country yeah. at least. so
3: well, is this the oldest part of the forest then um it's
1: not well forest is quite a tricky thing so what what this is part of part of the reason we're, we're looking at this is because radio 3 is doing a forest series mm. um starting this summer at, at midsummer uh, or around and we really are escaping to the forest, both literally, as, as we're doing right now, and also metaphorically. So we're looking at how the forests are part of our, well, our, our identity as humans, and um, uh, you know, how we use them culturally, how we use them just practically, uh, how, we, how we play with them, how we conjure with them, and also our national identity, our national story. When we think of forest, forest hello. is quite... Hello, bike. <laughs> um, forest is actually a word that really properly gets introduced into England, at least, when the Normans come. And so when we're talking about ancient forest, we've got to think, okay, well, what are we, what are we actually talking about? Mm. It's certainly true that Sherwood Forest has, uh, or oh, I think it's something close to a thousand ancient oak trees. Really? And yeah, it's, it, is, it is a... Remarkable place, I mean, you just have to walk around. If we know one, we know the, the great, the major oak, you know, that one that almost looks like a spider or some sort of creature, it's got all these branches and, and all these struts supporting it. Something like that, maybe it's 800 years old, maybe even a thousand years old. Um, when we think of ancient woodland, we're really talking about woodland that's kind of pre 1600, something like that. It's, it's before they started planting properly. So it's not necessarily the case at all that this is the oldest part. Um, okay. But yeah, it's, it, it's all pretty old around this part of the world.
3: And, and the Sherwood Forest that we, we know today is quite, looks quite different, doesn't it, to how it would have, so it would have been a lot bigger, stretched, a, encompassed a lot more than it does now. Yeah, in terms of the, the, the territory
1: that it encompassed, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very much shrunk as is the case for for lots of these ancient woodland and forest tracts, but forest doesn't just mean trees. So, I mean, where we are right now, we're walking down this lovely sunny path and we've got trees of all sorts on either sides. I can see oak, beech, birch, all the rest of it. Mm. But forest was actually, it it was more of a legal term. It was was a um, a part of the landscape that was under royal law, so it was used particularly by Norman kings and um, nobles for hunting. But if you're gonna go hunting, you need more than just forests. In fact, forests in terms of woodland, as we we think of it, they're not great for hunting. You think low branches, you're riding, (laughs) chasing a deer, you're just gonna go slap bang. Yeah, pretty dangerous. So you need heathland, you need moorland, you need scrubland, you need trees. But also within forests, uh, traditionally speaking, you could also have villages, hamlets, all sorts of different landscapes incorporated within that.
3: So forests were very much a part of people's daily lives then, yeah. as opposed to places to go and visit and like we do today perhaps. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So
1: I mean we have to think what use would forest landscapes and woodlands have been. Say if you're a little, I don't know, Anglo-Saxon peasant going back to kind of pre-1066 Norman Conquest, well it's going to be really useful for grazing your animals, for pannage. so somewhere where the pigs can root around and find food. Uh, The trees themselves are going to be important for fuel, for making charcoal, Uh, for agriculture, you'd have, have, um, you know, not necessarily permanent, we're not talking field systems, but places where you could grow crops. So these places are really important and that continues. So these sorts of environments are, are fantastic for resources, but what we start to see you know, as is so often the case later on when we get into, like, the Romantic period, is the idea of forests as something to be looked at and admired rather than something to be worked in and used. Although, I mean, if we're talking about leisure activities, that's also true of, say, you know, hunting, when, when you're, that's, you're not doing that because you need the venison, you're doing that because it makes you look like a, a big man
3: and you get a nice bit of venison at the end <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's quite hard to get into that mindset, isn't it, that in a forest then were, you know, part of you needed them to survive. Yes. And yeah. when, you know, were there laws around, you know, who could be in the forest, what they could do in the forest, were there laws around that? Well, this is I mean, forest law
1: is what comes in really with the Normans, although and it is a sort of French thing. I think the first reference we get to legal forest areas that are set aside for royal hunting is under Charlemagne, so we're talking 800 around that time. Um, so there are certainly laws that protect the areas. The issue is that the Normans get really greedy, particularly under William the Conqueror's son William Rufus. I mean, he, ironically or appropriately enough, he's, he's then killed while out hunting. Possibly an accident. Possibly something dodgy goes on. We're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, by the time we're up to around 1200 or so, I think it's something like in southern England, a third of the land has been legally parceled off uh, as as, you know as as royal forests so what you get there is is, I mean we're we're coming up to the time of King John Magna Carta um, but along with the Magna Carta in fact I think slightly predating the Magna Carta we get the Charter of the Forest which is basically bringing in that legal area that's under royal control and used for royal hunting and almost giving the rights back to the people so the people can use that land again as uh, as historically they did and i mean it's just been the 800th anniversary so the, the kind of the big uh, charter comes out in 1217 and so there's been all sorts of celebrations because it's almost like rights of the common man sort of celebrations about this idea that the forest is something for everyone or at least this woodland area with its different landscapes and different topographies are there to be used.
3: And but before them, when when they were under more under royal control, what how was that managed? What what happened to people who kind of you know breached those boundaries? Well, it's fun. I just speak, so because we're making this um, this uh,
1: uh, Sunday feature for Radio Three. Well, we're making a series of them. We're doing this the summer one as part of this forest season. And then we'll be doing autumn and winter. We've just been talking to um, the geographer Charles Watkins, who's at Nottingham. And he's, yeah, he, he was taking around all the big woods and talking about exactly that what happens to, to people um, who break the laws. I was thinking, you know, man traps and you know, people yeah, waiting around. You know,
3: armed guards, well, type exactly, thing. Exactly, you know?
1: exactly. But I mean, as, as he pointed out, it's really difficult to to um patrol woodlands so yeah. you did have officials and there were courts for people who particularly say poached the king's deer that sort of thing um i think somewhere i, I you know it, it was mostly fines i, I somewhere i read that. the I think the worst that could happen was your dog, dog would have its toes chopped off. But I Charles wasn't sure about that one, so, so I'm not... But, a bit harsh.
3: Yeah, little bit. Poor dog, right? Yeah. Um, and obviously Sherwood is, is, is probably best known for its associations with Robin Hood. Um, that kind of whole outlaw, you know, people hiding out in the forest, is that, does that kind of go back further than Robin Hood? It, yeah, it definitely does. And I think
1: it's part of this idea of... The forest as being somehow beyond the normal law, you know, because it's in royal control, but also being that sort of outside over there. So that word "forest," it's it's a like old French word, Mm. but it's related probably to the Latin word "forest," meaning outside. It's similar etymology to the word "foreigner." So that sense of being, yeah, outside, over there, beyond where people normally live, I think is part of the reason it becomes associated with that. Um, I mean, in Old Norse, so we're on our way to, to thing how this Norse assembly site, but uh, in, in Old Norse legal texts and also the Old Norse sagas, which are, you know, so medieval tales that are written down in around the 13th century in Iceland, we have stories of outlaws and they're either called vargar, which means wolves, or they're called skogmærðr. It means forest man, and that's the word for an outlaw. And it's it's funny because we know that these laws must have come from mainland Scandinavia, probably because in Iceland you don't really have any trees. The first settlers um, cut them all down, so Iceland gets completely deforested defo- And yet, it's still something that's preserved in the way people think about outlaws. And it's also there in in Old English. So you know in in anglo-saxon poems there's one called maxims two and it's saying it says something like the, the boar must be in the scrubland and, and the lone wolf in the forest and so it's that idea of that outside over there which is then appropriate that we have the assembly side that ultimate uh, symbol of of of, of legal authority in the Norse world in the middle of Sherwood Forest. Yeah, which I have to say I didn't even know existed. <laughs> no, well, it's, it's only very recently been discovered. It, it was discovered by local historians and archaeologists. There have been some excavations, but this is a pretty new thing. I mean, it's, it's something I only found out about recently, so it's, mm. it's kind of exciting for yeah. me too, yeah.
4: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate... Visit betterhelp.com/slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp slash history extra.
3: Moving on to kind of the more mythical and um, legend side of, of forests, when do we start seeing that kind of romantic view of, of woodlands? Well, I suppose it depends what
1: we mean. I mean, even in, in in medieval literature we do get some sense of of the forest of romance as it were mm. but th- those sorts of the idea of of the picturesque landscape we're really seeing in the 18th 19th century coming in and that seems to be when that association with robin hood also really picks up so again when i was speaking to charles watkins what he pointed out was that it was really with Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe that we start to see that romantic connection between Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest because um, Scott sets a scene where Robin Hood meets, I think, King Richard under a great oak tree in Sherwood Forest. And that's when all the tourists suddenly start coming and it all gets, you know, a place people want to just come and hang out and go, ooh, and gosh, a lot. But then if we go backwards, think of... That's the ultimate imaginative forest of the English imagination, at least. Shakespeare's Forest of Arden. Mm. And that's a very interesting one as well. We've been talking about outlaws and, and exiles. And that's, at least in part, its function in As You Like It. So Duke Senior gets gets out, well, at least exiled from court, or exiles himself from court with his men. And actually there's a line that says he's out there living at large in, in like, like Robin Hood and his merry men in Sherwood Forest. So there is that sort of association. And for Duke Senior, it's, it's almost an Eden. It's this sort of paradise away from the troubles of court. So it might be windy, it might be cold, but at least they're free. And in Shakespeare, we do get this idea of the the forest, the woodland, as a place where magic happens. You think Midsummer Night's Dream, you think lovers running off into the forest, we think strange happenings. And I think there it's this idea very much, again, of something removed from normal life, everyday boring, quotidian existence, something where fairies, magic, lovers, exiles can exist which I think is just a very natural impulse. We set the things that we don't really understand, we set our imaginative world in those spaces beyond and I think a forest or woodland is a a great place for that.
3: And and did that change that kind of idea, did that change the usage of, of forests as well? Well certainly in the 19th century you do start to see um, tourists,
1: for example, coming to Sherwood Forest. Yeah. That's, and this idea that they're here to admire rather than to use. And again, I mean, although what, what we also start to see in, in, in that sort of period is with the industrial revolution, woodlands being eaten up, you know, they've been used for timber, particularly in the Tudor period. Uh, so, you know, for, for the, the kind of increased naval fleets and also just an increasing population. But what we start to see in the Industrial Revolution is again, forests as a resource, but also a place where you can basically get rid of them if you need need more industry. Um, So what the Forest of Arden, which I mentioned in connection to Shakespeare is an interesting example, because it doesn't seem to have been under forest law. It It wasn't a royal forest in that sense. It was just dotted woodland and yet, it again gets chewed up for timber, um, it gets chewed up for fuel, and it gets chewed up to make Birmingham. Uh, interestingly, I think that's what Tolkien is playing on. He has this lovely, idyllic idea of the shire, yeah. and then he has Mordor, this awful place of, of fire and, well, industry to some extent. And I think it's been suggested that he was drawing on that Um, his his influence for that came from South Birmingham, this very industrial, um, very treeless place. And so when we get the harrowing of the shire at the end, it's, it's, you know, again, it's this imagination of a place that is no longer wooded, no longer bucolic, and no longer peaceful. So I think that in different ways, our our kind of, particularly in the modern era, our, our use of these landscapes these wooded landscapes are very much influenced by how they are used by poets and writers and musicians and the like.
3: Um, and sort of going right back to the very beginning of of, sort of the forest, you know, when do you first start seeing them, come, you know, emerging? So my
1: well, obviously, I'm not a scientist, but we have been talking to archaeologists and scientists about this for the program and my sense is that the forests as we think of them you know in terms of these these great wooded areas really start to come into existence around 400 million years ago but what's amazing is that these aren't I mean right now we're walking through this lovely English bucolic summer forest landscape but what you don't think of is forests in say Svalbard or forests in Antarctica okay. and, and yet there were um, so there was I think it's around 100 million years ago something like that uh, there, there is fossil evidence that suggests that there were quite substantial forests in Antarctica and in fact when Scott was coming back from his ill-fated expedition to the South Pole in 1912 he discovered some of these, these fossils and I, I'm not sure he knew what they were at that point but Certainly, this idea of this forested landscape in that particular part of the world um, in an era where there is no ice, and yet what I rather love about that is there's still the extremes of dark and light, and so they've actually evolved. You know, these these they were kind of dwarf, very closely packed together uh, forest landscapes, which were designed in order to take advantage of those particular conditions right at the southern tip of the world and fast forwarding a bit to to well basically the birth of, of humans and early man we've been talking to an archaeologist Eleanor Sherry in uh, Oxford who has been looking at the possibility that early man in Africa actually could have well at least in part, come from forests or gone back to the forest. There's there's all sorts of really interesting evidence of uh, stone tools, for example, that aren't these delicate, narrow ones that you might expect to see, for example, to, to skin meat, but these quite hefty axes that would have been used to chop wood. And so with her, we've been exploring the idea that almost, you know, we humans are... I don't know, I don't want to say designed for trees, designed for forests, but there is an aspect of that. I mean, you put a little kid on, a, on, on monkey bars and they just hang there, you know? It's, <laughs> yes. it's, it's quite an obvious place to be. And then just, if we, again, fast forward, uh, say to Ötzi, remember that, uh, the, 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 the body that was found up in the, the Alps, I think, about 5,000 years ago, something like that. And he'd fled to death, he'd been attacked. What's interesting there is that so much of how he was dressed and what he was carrying had come from trees, had come from the forest, so what he was wearing and and the tools he was carrying. And there's always been this sense that woodlands and forests are incredibly important resources in terms of, of how we live in the world, how we survive, how we make sense of our place mm-hmm. in the world. And that goes all the way back.
3: I mean forests today they're sort of seen as peaceful kind of tranquil places I mean just today the wind's kind of blowing through the trees and it's, it's a lovely day but they also have a sort of darker history and sort of fairy tales and myths don't they? They really do um I can think of
1: a it does make sense doesn't it I mean something like this so we've got to a bit of this lovely country path that on our left there's a a golden field full of full of rape and then we've got quite I don't want to say sparse tree coverage to our right but certainly there wouldn't be an awful lot lurking there but when we think of when I say the word forest what we think of is that sort of dense dark woodland where things really could be lurking behind uh, every tree and every bush and in fact funnily enough just this morning I was being shown around the part of Sherwood Forest by a witch um, called Moira a professional witch who was Absolutely amazing. She, she was doing spells with me uh, out in a little forest glade, but this is something she was talking about. She was saying, you can see when, you, when you're late at night in the forest and the branches of the, of the trees are moving, your imagination can start to play tricks on you. Mm. And of course, you know, I mean, there could be anything lurking out there, like human or non-human. So I think that in part that makes some very good settings for fairy tales and myths. I'm thinking of one just because we're on the way to a a Norse site that springs to mind, and that's the forest of Merkvide, or Merkwood, Tolkien uses it. But Merkvide is interesting because in one Old Norse text, it's, it's this kind of ancient Germanic, northern Germanic woodland. It's on the boundary between the territories of the Goths and the Huns. But in another mythological text, it's the ancient forest through which the sons of Musbeth, and Muspel is like the land of fire, it's the forest through which the sons of Musbeth ride to Ragnarok, which is you know, the apocalyptic end of days battle in Norse mythology. But it's also, that, I mean, we think closer to home, something like Grimm's fairy tales, how many of them are set in woods? Or uh, even, even, even like Irish myths and... and but even if we think of those great German forests, um, that's where so many of the fairy tales that were collected by the Grimm brothers and then have come into our uh, broader collective culture are set. So there's you know, Hansel and Gretel or Red Rising Hood, all of which have something nasty lurking in the woods, whether that's a big bad wolf or a witch in her cottage.
3: Wait, so we. Finally approaching thing, Um tell me a little bit about you know about it. Why why is this a special place? Well, you can see just from the way that the landscape
1: all matches up. We're getting to a much higher point in terms of well, Nottinghamshire than the rest of the area, and that's significant because of that, that second element, that how Huygur, it, it can mean a burial mound, it can also just mean a, a mound, a place that's quite prominent in the landscape because mm. it's a bit higher. And that would be a very appropriate place for a meeting point. And we can also see that in the place names around. So. The area that we think of as Sherwood Forest that we visit is actually called Birklands. And that gives us a sense of the Norse in a forested woodland landscape because mm-hmm. the birk element is the Norse word for birch. And then that land was actually lund or lunder, which means um, like a grove. So it's a, it's a birch grove. And then if you if you go around this area, you'll also see lots of place names with a by at the end. So mm. uh, I think there's um, Thorsby and then there's... Um, but Bios are quite close to here and those are farms so that B word B is still a town in in Norwegian and so it'll be maybe the place uh, the the farm of someone called Thorir or the farm of someone called Budur that sort of thing so yeah Yeah. so there's a real sense of people living in this landscape and I think we can say that about forests throughout time that it's not this sort of these are human, well, if not human landscapes, at least landscapes that humans live in or near or around. And mm. so you, you, get, you get a lot of the sense of that. And we just, see, I mean, looking out, it's, it's an absolutely glorious day, isn't Ooh. it? It's, it's very lucky. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you just imagine you're a, you're a Norse settler coming from Denmark, Norway. Yeah, you, you'd be happy to be settling in a place like this and also forming your own sense of a, a legal society. This is part of the area that was known as the Dane Law. Or became known as the Danelaw. It's it's the, the part of the country where the Norse settled in the um, late part of the ninth century in particular, and they're still here all around us in our place names, in our
3: yeah. in our heritage, very much so. And this is where they kind of these sort of, it was like a parliament then, was it a meeting yeah. of the sort? Of, people yeah.
1: in charge or, yeah, exa- or just just, just everyone, anyone, mm. not necessarily just the people in charge. Um, societies tend to be more egalitarian than we might think. So it's mm. not like a collection of nobles or something. It is, it is, you know, maybe the farmers, the locals, everyone coming together and it's where, you know, law cases would be held, marriages would be arranged, deals brokered in terms of land, just everything you can think of. And so it would make sense that it would be in a fairly... Uh, topographically speaking, a prominent place yeah. like this in the landscape, and yet also all around us in those place names, um, we get a sense of yeah, the Norse living here, farming here, making use of the woodland, making use of of just these these really special natural resources mm. in a very farmable part of of the world. Mm. And it's, it's interesting that we're, we're in Sherwood Forest and we're still in that area, even though it feels quite open where we are mm. right now. Um, partly because of just how many, we, we mentioned earlier, these extraordinary number of ancient oaks that are here, often very distinctive. They, they almost have... They're in personalities, you know. Some of them are, are squat, and they have all these these branches coming off them, almost like like I don't know tentacles or mm. something. And then others are very very tall. Many of them are hollow. You can, you can fit inside them. You can fit a party inside <laughs> them. And that sense of, of of specific trees being distinctive, and and sometimes we see that in trees that people have attached. Stories too, particularly if they are unusual looking. So the major oak, you know, the, the, yes. that, that enormous, yeah, in in Sherwood Forest, um, is a really good example of that. But we also get the sense of of trees themselves sometimes as not. We almost think of them as, I don't know, passive back backdrops to our lives but you know they've got their own very busy community community yeah, yeah <laughs> ex- exactly i mean i've i've, I've been um uh, reading recently about how trees are so connected. there's almost like a mother tree and the mother tree will send out nutrients and other trees have kind of nitrogen fixing nodules to help the other trees in this in this network um, almost under the ground as it as it were so so we don't see it in the way that we imagine the world but there's this yeah this secret world of trees going on beneath our feet this sense of connections this sense of um, almost I I I don't want to sound like take it too far, but but this this sense of of a social hierarchy amongst trees. So, you know, it's all very well this idea of having a tree and cutting one down and planting another and and so making a sort of sustainable woodland environment. But if you cut down a mother tree that's actually sending a lot of nutrients out, these these ancient trees, then there's all sorts of repercussions. And and in these ancient trees as well, we have, even if they're dead, they're still They're still producing life, you know, if not from the offshoots themselves, then from the 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 wildlife. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The shell, the sort of insects, the bird life, um, the animal life that are all living in them. And it's, it's a very complex very beautiful very mysterious in lots of ways um, system I, I get the sense that there's still an awful lot we don't know still mm. and, and that's hidden and that's part of what we're trying to do in this series as well um, yeah. uh, on Radio 3 is is really try and find out what what's still out there what's on the edge you know either like scientifically biologically but also imaginatively or in terms of I don't know even who knows, we might find, find strange humans we never expected <laughs> to find
2: living in the forest. That was Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough in conversation with Charlotte Hodgeman at Sherwood Forest. Eleanor's recent BBC Radio 3 series, entitled Forests, is out now on BBC Radio iPlayer, as is another documentary she produced for the network entitled The Summer Forest. And you can read an article by Charlotte and Eleanor in our July issue, which is on sale now with Viking Warriors on the front cover. Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are now on sale for our History Weekend events, taking place this October in Winchester and York. Among the speakers are Dan Jones, Michael Wood, Lucy Worsley and Susanna Lipscomb, who I'm pleased to say has now been added to our York event. For more details and tickets please visit historyweekend.com. Well, that's about it for today's episode, but we'll be back on Monday to talk about the history of Ireland.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at history Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.